uh, during this time. And, and just to mention, if you haven't seen in, in the email that Matt has come home, uh, and so huge, huge answer to prayer. Yeah, absolutely. Praise the Lord. Let's begin our, our time in God's word with a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this morning that we can come together to worship you. And uh, right now, as we open up your word, use this truth to change us and make us more like you. And Lord, help me now to faithfully and, and clearly preach your words, not mine, but yours, all for your glory. Amen. Our text this morning is going to be in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at the first two verses uh, today of Romans chapter 12. And this is a familiar passage to, to many, I'm sure, in this room. Uh, I think Rick Presley called it a, a chapel message because it's oftentimes preached in chapel, and that might be true. Uh, that, that, that's probably true. But um, I, I do want to encourage you this morning. Don't let the familiarity of this text dull your senses because this is God's Word, and it is powerful. And so... Uh, with that being said, let's read our text this morning. The text reads, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the reading of God's word. You know, in 1858, there was a man named John Patton who took his wife to the New Hebrides Islands. Uh, there are islands in the Pacific, somewhere between uh, Sydney, Australia, and Honolulu. And uh, his desire was to take the gospel to a people known to be cannibals. And one historian said this about the people of these islands. He said, To the best of our knowledge, the New Hebrides Islands had no Christian influence before 1839. Think about that. No Christian influence between, or before 1839. And John Patton, just to give you a little insight into who he was, John Patton was a very involved uh, churchman. He, he was a, involved in a church in Scotland, uh, the church was paying him well, and he was developing a pretty big following. The church was growing in number because of his influence and his, and his preaching. And when John told the church of his going, and specifically where he was going, uh, many in the congregation just simply didn't understand. Uh, many of them thought that his desire uh, was foolish um, and, and a waste of God-given talent. One biography, it put it this way, the church begged him, <laughs> begged him to stay due to the prospect of, of danger and death. The famous missionary John Williams had been killed and eaten less than two decades earlier. The tragedy was still fresh on everyone's minds. One dear Christian saint cried, the cannibals, you will be eaten by the cannibals. Uh, and to this, Patton replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, 
My resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our Redeemer. Wow, mic drop, right? It's said that today, 20% of the people from the New Hebrides Islands identify to be evangelical Christian. It's amazing. And this is due to how God used a man like John Patton many years ago. But this was not without hardship. Uh, I think it was four months in, he lost his wife, uh, who he was uh, newly wed to. He, he also lost his son. They, they were pregnant early, and, and their son died as well. He didn't have the financial security or the comforts of home, but, but God used him and used him in a, in a great way. And what an encouraging example for us today. Patton lived his life for Christ despite the great personal cost that it was to him, which begs us to ask the questions. These are the questions I want to ponder this morning. How can we live our Christian lives sold out for Christ despite the cost? What should the Christian life look like? What does God expect our worship to look like? Today I want to talk to you this morning about the Christian life and how those who have been saved by the blood of Christ are called to worship God with their lives. There are just two points in my sermon today. It's very, very simple, okay? The two points are these. Paul tells us that our lives are to be, number one, sacrificial, found in Romans 12.1, that our lives are to be sacrificial, that's number one, and that our lives are to be transformed, found in Romans 12.2. So let's look at that first point together. Paul tells us that our lives are to be sacrificial, Romans 12.1, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What does Paul mean when he says a living sacrifice? I mean, I think we should be kind of aware of what he means. You know, like they're dead sacrifices. That, that sounds a little bit more normal, uh, right? In the Old Testament, uh, you know, people would bring the animal to the priest. The priest would slay the animal, and they would take the dead animal and put it on the altar as prescribed by God, and, and it would be sacrificed up to the Lord. But a living sacrifice? Uh, that's strange, right? Uh, does Paul mean here to take a, you know, that we're to all bring a goat to the, you know, uh, tabernacle and, and, and put a goat on the altar? What would, you, what would happen if we put a live animal on the altar? It would jump off, right? It would jump off. But that's not what Paul's saying. Paul isn't talking about some cultic practice here or, or some type of self-harm, suicide. That's not what he's saying. But Paul is speaking metaphorically here, right? He's talking about willingly giving yourself in submission to God, your whole self, the word bodies here, to present your bodies, the word bodies in this text represents everything that you are, everything that makes you you, your externals and your internals. So many Christians talk about Christianity today like it's easy, like all we have to do is give a, a piece of ourself, that worship is just nothing but Sunday morning worship and that's it, like it costs them nothing. It only costs them a piece of themselves. But that's not the type of worship that's being talked about in this passage. Worship doesn't just consist of Sunday morning worship. But it's, it's, it, it, what's being talked about in this passage is, is a worship that's moment by moment, uh, 24-7, 365 days a year. 
type of worship. It's giving to God your eyes with what you see. It's giving to God your hands and what you touch. It's giving to God your mind and the things that you fill it with and what you think. It's giving, your, it's giving to God what, what, you, uh, what you love, your heart, right? It's giving to God your, your feet and where you go, everything that you are. I found a commentary that said this this week, and it said it well. It is not only what we can give that God demands. God demands the giver. You hear that? Let me say that again. This is a golden nugget. It is not only what we can give that God demands. God demands the giver. God doesn't just want your time and your money and your comforts, but he wants you. He wants all of you. If you think that you can just come to church, right, and, and, and take out your wallet and drop out that green piece of paper or a check and drop it in that tithe box in the, in the hallway there and then go home and live however you want, that's not acceptable to God. That's not worship that pleases him. That's not what's in view here. You could consider the words of Jesus, right, when he says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Now, and I want to be clear, uh, you know, Jesus isn't saying there, Paul isn't saying here, I'm not advocating for this, that, that we all go and, and we go find a, a cannibal island right now in the world and that we go and take the gospel there and we preach it until we get eaten, okay? That's not what we're saying, right? If that's what God's calling you to, then go. But it means that you're giving yourself unto God with your life because you are his. You are his possession, in everything that you do, you are living for him. You're living with him for, with, with your job or your high school education or your college education. You're, you're living for him with your family or even your hobbies, the things that you like to do. It's all his because you are all his. It means death to self. Our BC life, our before Christ life, we did whatever we wanted to with our eyes. We looked at what we wanted to look at. We touched what we wanted to touch. We went where we wanted to go. We filled our minds with things that we wanted to fill our minds with. We loved what we wanted to love. But we've been, we've been bought by the precious blood of Christ. We're no longer our own. 1 Corinthians six nineteen through 20 tells us that we're to glorify God with our bodies. This is the type of sacrificial living that Paul is calling us to here, that, worship, that, that honors him. And it is a worship, it is a worship that brings, um, that, that, it, that is acceptable. It says here in the text, holy and acceptable to God. Holy and acceptable. Holy, meaning set, a, set apart for very special use. A very special use. Being set apart from the things of this world and the philosophies and the ideologies of this world and instead living for God. It also means to live pure lives. Seeking to live uncontaminated lives apart from sin. And let me be clear here. Um, this is not in order to be saved. Paul here is writing to Christians. This is written to Christians to instruct us again how we are to worship God with our lives. The Christian life, what it should look like. Holy and acceptable. Acceptable. In the Greek, this word means to be well-pleasing. So literally, this, this part of the text is, Paul is saying that our sacrificial worship is holy and pleasing to God. But how do we go about doing this, right? 
Because sacrificial worship in the way that we're talking about here, it sounds like a really good thing, this moment-by-moment worship. You know, everybody starts off good in the new year, right? And like, you know, have high ambitions. You know, every moment I'm going to give to the Lord. I mean, that's, that's a good thing, right? But like, how do we do that? Because that's, that's it's a lofty thing. How do we go about living for God with our lives? This total commitment and sacrifice. I think the answer is found right here in the first part of our verse. Where Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. The motivation here is found in the mercies. The mercies of God. What mercies does Paul refer to here? I think it refers to everything that Paul has said up until this point in the book of Romans. Uh, I, I believe that that therefore is it's not just pointing to what, what was just immediately said, but it's, it's pointing to all 11 chapters that Paul has covered up until this point. And, and Romans is the, is the book I'm taking the ABF um, uh, students through. And uh, we're in chapter 4, so it feels kind of like I'm cheating right now. By, I'm, I'm, well, I, I, I push fast forward, I skipped a few chapters, and I feel, feel like I cheated. Um, but, you know, with the ABF class, uh, we oftentimes go over the outline of the book of Romans and the purpose of the book of Romans. Because I think it's important to be able to it kind of ingrain the pieces of, of books in, into your mind and into your heart so that you kind of, they come, be, almost become a part of you. And if you were to boil down the book of Romans just down to one word, that word would be righteousness. Righteousness. Perfection according to God's holy standard. And this is how the books really split up. Uh, I'll show, demonstrate to you that it's all about righteousness. Paul first, he introduces righteousness, right, in chapter 1. And then he talks about our need for righteousness. Then he talks about the provision of righteousness, the demonstration of righteousness, the future of God's righteousness, 9 through 11. And then our text, what our text introduces, the behavior of righteousness, what righteous living looks like. This is a big turning point in this book. And as I've been in Romans, I was bouncing back last night. We got back from Indiana. I bouncing back between my Sunday school in chapter 4 and uh, my sermon uh, in chapter 12. And, and as I've been studying, I've been, I, I've been coming to realize that Romans is almost like its own uh, miniature systematic theology. There's so many doctrine, uh, so much doctrine and theological bombshells that, that Paul drops in this book. Uh, he talks about condemnation and justification and sanctification and glorification and restoration and, and predestination and election and uh, eternal security and so on, right? It's just packed full of doctrine and theology. Romans 1 through 11 is theological. And then when we get to our text, this turning point, chapter 12, through 16. It's, it's taking that theology and, and putting it on display. You know, the first 11 chapters, it's, it's full of doctrine, but 12 through 16, it's full of devotion, how we devote ourselves to the Lord. The, the first 11 chapters, it's full of indicatives and statements, and then the last uh, chapters, 12 through 16, it's full of imperatives and how to live for Christ. It's a uh, Format that Paul uses in other epistles as well, like Ephesians and Colossians. Why does he use this format? Well, I think one, one possible reason for him using this is because you have to know who the Lord is in order to be able to live for him, right? You can't live for the Lord if you don't know who the Lord is, right? 
Romans 12, verse 1, by the mercies of God. Mercies, I want to hone in on that word just a little bit because it is the motivation for our sacrificial living. Mercies is in the plural here. Not mercy, but mercies. And I believe it represents all the saving mercies of God. And I, I really wish, I wish I could just, I wish we, could, we for time's sake, I can't just preach through the entire book of Romans to get you there. But um, let me just say that Paul tells us in Romans that we were all once in, in a great need of salvation. And, and, and some people claim to be good on their own. Such people have not read the book of Romans uh, and, and read Romans 3 that says that there is no one good. There is no one righteous. No, not one, right? Romans 1.18 to 3.20, it takes the self-righteous person and throws them around like a, like a rag doll, right? Paul speaks so much in, the, in this book. He would offend ears that want to be tickled. He talks so much about the depravity of man and the condemnation of sin. Why does he do that? I think to establish, again, remember the point of Romans, to establish that there's, there's a righteousness that we need that, that, that must come from outside of ourselves. Because when I, as Paul said in communion, there's nothing inherently righteous about, my, about Andy Fitzpatrick, right? I know me. There's nothing inherently righteous about me. I need, if, if righteousness, if, if uh, in his purpose, thesis statement, 116 and 17, if the just shall live by faith, I need a righteousness that comes from outside of myself. You need a righteousness that comes from outside of yourself. Paul demonstrates that to us in Romans, and, and, and how merciful is God in sending his son to die for man. God sent his one and only son, his righteous divine son, to a people unrighteous and unworthy of God. If we got what we deserve, we would get God's wrath and his fury. That's demonstrated to us in the book of Romans. But yet God sent his son to this world on a mission to redeem our souls from condemnation. To to reconcile those who were once separated from God because of their sin. Just, I, I don't think we can consider the mercies of God, the sacrifice of God enough. Think of this text, Hebrews 9, 11 through 12, which talks this way about Christ's sacrifice for sins. Hebrews 9, 11 through 12, it says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with human hands. I put human in there. That is to say, not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. There's one sacrifice that, 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 is, that through his one sacrifice, all sins, past, present, and future, forgiven. Sufficient. It's sufficient for eternal redemption. Do you see it? Do you understand that? It's hard to understand. But it's amazing. It's amazing to think about. I love talking about the great exchange. I've talked about it before from this pulpit, and I'll talk about it again because repetition's the key to learning, okay? And so it, with, with those who put their trust in him, this is what Christ does. He takes our sin upon himself, and in exchange, in exchange, church, imputes his righteousness to our account. So that when we stand before God one day, God doesn't see us as if we live the life of Paul Grice or Andy Fitzpatrick, but he sees us as if we live the very life that Christ lives. 
See how reconciliation can take place? See how that's possible with a holy God? It's through the imputation of righteousness. It's through the righteousness of Christ that he sets on our, on our account through his sacrifice. It's amazing. And yet, despite such great mercies, despite what we're talking about right now, there's such an apathy in the church today, such an apathy with Christianity today. This lack of interest, I think, comes because people just have become disinterested with theology and who God is. We don't read our Bibles anymore. We forget and don't know fully what we've been saved from. We'd rather have our ears tickled and our misguided confidence boosted, it seems. But Paul here, he's urging, he's, he's urging saints here to not become apathetic to the truths, to the mercies of God, to the gospel, but to be filled with the truth so much so that it affects and impacts the way that we live our lives for him. Filling our minds with truth so that truth, this is, this is the perfect, this, this is theology that, that's living, theology that works. When you fill your minds with truth as to who God is, what happens if it works is it will not just stay in the mind, but it will work its way down into your heart and change what you love. And when, when that truth of God uh, and, and God's word changes what you love, it doesn't just stop at your heart, but you know what it does? It goes all the way down to your feet and it directs you in how you live your life. That's theology that works, so that we become doers of the word and not just mere hearers of the word. Theology that just stays, knowledge of God that just stays in the mind, it's, it's worthless, it's dead, it's Pharisee, uh, it's Phariseeism. Phariseeism, I don't know if that's a word. It is now. Uh, Paul urges us by the mercies of God to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, which is our spiritual worship. Spiritual worship. This word spiritual in the Greek, it's a word um, logikos. Probably butchered that. I'm terrible with Greek. Um, but it's the idea of thoughtfulness or, or reasoning through something. That's uh, where we get the English word logic. So when and actually, other translations, they translate that word reasonable. So it says in the other, other translations, this is a reasonable act of worship. So Paul is saying here, you know, consider, consider everything that Christ has done on your behalf. Consider, that you have, consider what you've been saved from and consider your position that you have now in Christ. And when you consider all those things, you only have one reasonable one reasonable response to such considerations. And that is to live and present our bodies as a living sacrifice to Christ, who sacrificed himself for us. One of my favorite Bible verses to, to have memorized is 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15, which says, for the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all. Oh man, I messed it up. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. Do you hear that? Amen. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. It's a different translation. I memorized it in the NASB. A wonderful 
A wonderful means of sanctification comes through remembrance, remembering what Christ has done for us on the cross. It's what we participated in today in communion. And it's so important that we do that because we are a people so prone to forget, so prone to wander, right? So prone to come off of that altar as living sacrifices. But saint, don't forget that Christ willingly and lovingly became obedient for our sake to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that we can be reconciled to God. So how will you respond to such mercies? Our point number one, our Christian lives are called to be sacrificial because Christ's life was sacrificial. I brought up John Patton in the beginning. He had a really cool quote that I thought would fit real well right here. That missionary I spoke of in the beginning of my message, he says, God gave his best, his son, to me, and I gave back my best, my all, for him. This is our only sensible response to Christ's life, burial, and resurrection. It's holy and pleasing to God, and this living sacrifice is motivated by who Christ is and what he's done. Next, let's move on to Paul's second point for Christian living, that our lives are to be transformed, Romans 12, 2. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. So Paul, before Paul calls us to be transformed, he tells us not to be conformed. Now sometimes you have to learn what you're called uh, not to do before you learn what, oh, excuse me. Sometimes you have to learn what you're called to do before you, oh no, I said it wrong. You're, you're called to learn what not to do before you know what to do. Human. I need, I need God's grace every day, every moment. The word conform means to mold or shape. I want to look at that word, conform. Mold or shape. The Christian life is full of moments of resisting the pressure of being conformed into this, uh, this, this world and this, this, the, the, the idea, uh, ideologies of this world. Um, let me explain it this way. It's, it's like, have you ever seen those children toys? The kids take those shapes and they stick it into those holes, right? Micah has those, and, and sometimes my, my youngest son, he'll take, you know, a circle and he'll try to shove it into a square hole, right? And it doesn't fit, and he'll grunt, and he'll scream, and try to get it in there, and it won't go in. But, you know, in a way, that's kind of like the Christian living in this world. It's, you know, as if we were uh, circles. Christians were circles, and the world is always trying to shove us and pressure us into a square mold, Teens, we, we, we talk about this all the time, how to deal with the external pressures of the world. We don't belong here. This place is not our home, right? We shouldn't fit into this world. We're called to be holy. We talked about that, set apart from, the, from this world and, and also the things of this world. 1 John 2, 15 through 16, is a, it's a great text for this, a great reference to write down. It says, do not love the world or the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is what? Not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. Now, I think it is important to just establish that Paul isn't commending isolation here, you know. He's not saying for us to go and find a place completely isolated from society. I don't think you could find support for that anywhere in the Bible, biblically. You know, we're called to be with the church we're called to uh, be ambassadors for Christ, right? Proclaiming uh, and pointing lives to Christ. 
I've heard it said that we're to be like a boat in the water, but to have no water in the boat. Does that make sense? And to be clear, when we say world here, you know, do not be a part, do not love the world, do not love the things of the world. When we say world here, we're not talking about the celestial ball that we all live on, right? But we're talking again about the ideologies and the evil beliefs, the evil world system of the world. And unlike conformity that deals with the external pressure, transformation deals with change that takes place on the inside and works its way out. It literally means to morph or change. It's also in the present tense showing that this should be a continuous action in our lives to be transformed. Romans 8.29 speaks to this in, in, in how those who have been predestined according to God's grace are being conformed to the image of his son. The Christian life isn't just sacrificial. It's not just giving ourselves, but it's also a life of transformation. Daily becoming more and more like Christ. Looking more and more like him. This is essentially the doctrine of sanctification. And how is this done? Because, you know, again, it sounds like a really great idea. It's what Paul's calling us to. But what does that practically look like in our lives? Well, if we continue reading our text, we see that this transformation takes place by what? The renewal of our mind. Now, I want to I camp out here for a moment because this is, this is, this is absolutely critical to understand. You know, in, in, in counseling today, in teaching um, or, or parenting today, we oftentimes wonder how we can correct bad behavior. You know, Johnny's, you know, belching at the, you know, dinner table, you know, and, and Johnny, don't do that, you know, and we're always, we're always trying to do behavior modification to help our, and shape others to be uh, who we think that they should uh, be and how they sh- should behave. But where must we look for true change to take place? We should look at the heart, the heart, the mind, the inner man, right? Sinful behavior stems from the the heart. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what Jesus taught. In Mark 7, 20 to 23, uh, Jesus says this about our external behavior. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come where? From within, and they defile a person. Every evil deed has an evil thought. And if we desire to worship God, through being transformed into Christ's likeness, then we need to seek to have our minds renewed. You know, we don't always look at man accurately. We look at man how man looks at man. We look at, you know, the real you isn't what you project on Facebook or Instagram, okay? The real you isn't what people see at church on Sunday. The real you isn't what people even see at your home. The real you is what God sees taking place in your inner man, your your mind. Proverbs 23, verse 7, jot that down. Proverbs 23, verse 7 has this to say about our minds. Very insightful. It says, for as he thinks within himself, so he is. Say that again. For as he thinks within himself, 
so he is. In other words, what? What you think is who you are. And this is how God sees man. First uh, Samuel 16, 7 is a, a wonderful reference. For the Lord sees not as man sees, right? Man looks at the outward appearance, but what does the Lord look at? The Lord looks at the heart. And so church, how, how is your thought life? How is your thought life? What do you think about throughout the day? What do you think about when you go home and you rest? Would you feel comfortable having your thoughts somehow put into a file and shared with everyone at church this morning? Or does that terrify you? If it terrifies you, let me tell you this, that the God of the universe, our holy God, there's not one thought that comes across your mind that he doesn't know. Psalm 139, is, it's a helpful passage. It says this in verse 2, that God knows our thoughts from afar. He knows all of your thoughts. There isn't a thought that he doesn't know. You know, oftentimes people say, they said this in seminary, they said, uh, you know, you, when you guys become pastors one day, you're going to live in a fishbowl. Everybody's going to, you know, see, look at you guys, look at your family and things. And that's, there's some truth to that, I'm sure. But before God, we all live in the fishbowl. Yeah, we all live in the fishbowl. He sees it all. Are there thoughts, church, in your life that need repented of? Thoughts that we need to take to God? Thoughts of bitterness and discontentment or lusts? What happens when you constantly feed your mind with such thoughts? What will, that, what, what will that lead to? Not righteous living. Not holy living, right? The mind can be influenced in, in one of two ways. It's going to either be influenced uh, by the word of God or the world. And there's no neutral stance there. You're either passively allowing for the world to conform you or you're actively renewing your mind. It's one or the other. In the passive approach, we think it's innocent, but it's dangerous because the world's never going to stop being the world. The world's never going to stop trying to conform you to its image. You know, the only time that stops is when we enter into glory or when Christ comes back. Therefore, we must understand what it means to renew our minds and gear up as we battle and we wage war against this world. I love 1 Peter 1.13. I know it's a lot of references this morning, but this is a good one. 1 Peter 1.13, which says, this is Paul saying, or, or Peter, excuse me, talking, therefore preparing your minds for action, preparing your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know how that is translated elsewhere and what the originals is, is, is saying there? In other translations, it's translated literally, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. If you don't know what a loin is, okay, you're like, what on earth? Okay, a loin. You know, men back in the day, they wore these long robes, right? Uh, kind of look, they look kind of like dresses. They weren't dresses, all right? They're robes, all right? But they're long, and kind of like a dress. But anyway, and, they, and they would, when they went, went into battle, right, they got these long flowing robes, for those that don't understand, and, and, and what they would do is they would gird them up, they would, they, would, they would tighten them so that they wouldn't wave about, so that there would be a little bit more of a fluid motion, they wouldn't get caught up in their garments. We would do well to have some loose ends in our, in our thinking girded up. Amen? 
Let me just give you a few practical, this isn't an exhaustive list, okay? I don't have the time. But, but, but these, just let me give you a few practical ways that we can work at renewing our minds. Number one, studying God's word. Philippians 4a, it's a truth that comes to my mind concerning mind renewal. Philippians 4a says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What would happen if we took that text and, and did that every single day? Or let me ask you this question. How often do we find ourselves feeding our minds with things that go a, a contrary to Philippians 4.8? Well, we're not filling our minds with things that are true and worthy of praise. Not, not filling our minds with things that are excellent, right? Honorable. I've, I've counseled just in these two years. I was telling the Sunday school, you know, counseling, those counseling classes seemed really cool in seminary and things, but then you get out and you start doing it. And it's, it's hard. It's hard because they're real people and real problems. And, and the words that are oftentimes used in my office are anxiety and depression. There are so many uh, imprisoned with those ways of, of thinking. And I oftentimes will prescribe them. I'm not a doctor, um, but, but I, I, I just got my master's. That's it. I'm not a doctor. But I prescribe them Philippians 4.8. They need to get a dose of that every single day to be filling their minds with what is true, filling their minds with the word of God. And, and, and such discipline takes time. It takes time. Because so often, you know, too, we, we think only our actions are important to guard and keep in check. And we've almost under, adopted the understanding that we can't have any control over what we fill our minds with. Or it's just innocent to let our minds wander off. But again, that's just, that's not, that's not true. And for, and for many, it takes it takes a while. You just think of somebody that eats junk food nonstop. Junk food, junk food, junk food. And, and they get to be, you know, 800 pounds. I don't know if that's even possible. But that, that would take an awful lot of time, right, to, to undo that damage. And, so, and, and for those of us that continuously are filling our minds with, with bitterness and lusts and, and discontentment uh, thoughts, it takes disciplining yourself and putting on that Philippians 4.8 to allow for Philippians 4.8 to dominate your thinking. And, and just look at how powerful the Word of God is in our life, right? What it's able to accomplish. That the Word of God, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, that, that, it, that the Word of God is used for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work, right? The Word of God is, it, it's God's Word, it's God's word, and it's, and it's given to us to teach us and reprove us and correct us. I think D.L. Moody said this, and if he didn't say this, I, I'm sorry. If he did say this, he said it really well. And this is what he said. The goal of Scripture is not just information, but transformation. It's not enough to just uh, master the word, but the word must master us. That's good. I was encouraged. I, 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 she might be embarrassed by this. She's not here. That's okay. We can talk about her. Um, Anna Wells, I saw on Facebook just recently, put that, anybody see that? Women, ladies, that she put that just encouragement to read God's word together in a year. I think that's awesome. We should be doing that as, together as a church, right? Reading the scriptures, right? We're in this new year and things. Don't get stumped over Leviticus like most, okay? God's word is important. It's God's word, right? And we should be doing that, filling our minds with scripture 
um, every day. And this is kind of uh, a part of that, but memorizing the Word of God, number two, practical step for renewal. You know, you don't know what you're going to encounter in your every day, and sometimes you don't have the sword with you at your job or wherever you are. And to be able to pull, I don't have my wallet, but to be able to pull out that, your wallet, your, your, to be able to, to, to call and count on your mind for spiritual currency that you can use in your day. You want to know how God uh, wills for you to live? Know his word. His will, uh, his will for you is found in his word. And, and, and to be able to pull out God's word to help you when temptation comes or to be able to even uh, help someone else, another brother or sister struggling with something, to be able to recall of something that you can, you can bring to them. The Prince of Preachers, Spurgeon, he was very encouraged by uh, a man named John Bunyan, the, the guy who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, and he was uh, encouraged by him because of his tendency to hold captive the Word of God. This is what Spur Spurgeon said about John Bunyan. He said, I would quote John Bunyan as an instance of what I mean. Read anything of his, and you will see that it is almost like reading the Bible itself. He had read it till his very soul was saturated with Scripture, and though his writings are charmingly full of poetry, yet he cannot give us his Pilgrim's Progress, that sweetest of all prose poems, without continually making us feel and say, why, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere, and his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved. That ought to be us. If, our, if we started to bleed, we have so much Bible uh, that, that, that is, has permeated into us that we just start spilling out Bible. Bible verses just spill out of us. That, that ought to be our desire. If you don't have, there's so many apps today of verse memorization. I, one I use is called Verses. Um, but you could, if you think apps are evil, you know, use the old uh, note card, you know, that you flip them, you know. Be, be, that's not just an Awana thing. That's an everyone thing. It's, it's how we renew our minds. And, 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 and third thing, these aren't, you know, these aren't things that you haven't heard before, but it's good. It's good to consider. Your prayer life. Another way that you can renew your minds is through prayer. When you are on your knees before God, aligning your will with God's will. What's God's will for us? How can we know God's will? Through his word. Aligning your will with God's will, depending on him, confessing your sins before him. How are you, church, with your devotional life? Let me encourage you this next year that we're in to spend quiet times with the Lord, to put your phone away when you wake up and before you go to bed, to reserve those times for renewing your mind. And, and there's so much more that could be said about renewing your minds. And it's of such great importance that we all uh, practice this in order to be, again, transformed, to be like Christ, especially in days that we live in today, these dark days um, and, and, and these, these times of, of hopelessness that we experience. Um, church, we can't afford to be passive with renewing our minds. Uh, Transformation, real change, it starts in the mind, and as you continue to be transformed, you will find that your thoughts, your thoughts will become more like God's thoughts, and what you love becomes more like what God uh, loves. That's what renewal is. It's that reprogramming, and we all need it. We all need it. And, and this is very important. Don't forget that you're not left alone to force this trans uh, transformation and renewal out of your own volition. God has given us who? The helper, the Holy Spirit, right? who is able to work in us and through us for his good pleasure. 
to bring about this change. Uh, what, you know, we certainly couldn't do very much without him. And uh, I would say, because of its importance, if, there's, if this is something you would like to talk about further, um, that I would, I would be more than willing to talk to you about this. The elders would love to talk to you about this. It, it is that important. Um, our time is fleeting. Let me finish up the text this morning. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I believe what Paul is saying as we close here today is that as we put these truths into practice, we will experience the true blessing of living out God's will for us found in his word. The word testing here, it means to find out the worth of something by putting it into practice. When our, our Christian life is marked by sacrifice, first point, right? And continuous uh, Christ-like transformation, second point. When we put these things into practice, we will experience and, and know and, and discern the blessings of what it means to live for God in this life. Experiencing the, the blessings of a life marked by holiness and obedience and come to know how to worship in accordance with his will, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Let's pray. Lord, help us to, to remember your, your mercies, that in your rich mercy you sent your Son for sinners like us. Help us in this year to continually give ourselves sacrificially and, and grow in Christ-likeness, that we'd experience the worth of living out your will. All for your glory. Amen.